0: In D.C., you had free reign. You could live where you wanted. You had black meds, black police chiefs, black judges, black teachers, black doctors. But the street element here was so thick. It was so heavy that a kid saw all of that and you still wanted to be a hustler. Because nobody in your neighborhood became.
1: This is mark Carr, and this is the capital innovation podcast a podcast about mass incarceration in washington dc uh, today we have two native sons of washington dc we have mr tony lewis jr and we have matt ashton so since i'm not officially from dc i'm going to concede and let matt lead this episode matt what's up how you doing
2: not much i'm super excited to have a our special guest today, Mr. Tony Lewis, Jr., I've heard a lot about you growing up, um, even to the, the the music I listened to, I listened. to, I grew up on Wale like everybody else in DC and PG,
0: yeah. you
2: know, Dig Dug and all of that. And, you know, he always referenced you and a lot of the other major players in the hip-hop DC uh, marketplace, I guess. So, you know, I did more research on you, um, saw which, the moves you were making with Sons of Life and... Um, DC or nothing initiative, and it's just super impressive. So, Thank you, once man. again, thanks for being on our show. Uh, I read the book Slug A Boy's Life in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Um, it blew my mind. It was crazy because. It talks about a lot of the same things my father grew up experiencing. He was he grew up, he, he was born in sixty five, grew up in Southeast by Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, mm-hmm. you know, right by St. Elizabeth's, which was touch on also. But sure. you know, not to kind of prolong this intro, I just wanted to give the floor to you to kind of just give us a brief description of what you're about and your connection to DC. Well,
0: now first of all, thanks for having me guys. It means a lot. Um well, you know, you thank thanks for that introduction. You Appreciate know what it. I'm um, but I guess I would describe myself as a community leader, um, social entrepreneur, um, a philanthropist, I guess at this point, um, an author, a husband, a father, a neighbor. Um, and uh, my work has really been around mass incarceration on several levels one is uh being an advocate and mentoring kids with incarcerated parents um but the bulk of my work has been in ex-offender reentry, working with men and women coming home from prison um helping them from a workforce development standpoint right. getting jobs mindset change self-sustainability things like that um my father I'm Tony Lewis, Jr. My father, Tony Lewis, Sr. has been incarcerated for the past 27 years. Um, I'm now 36. My dad went to prison when I was nine. So I'm a child of an incarcerated parent. Um, and and I really wanted to bring to the surface all that that entails, right. um, all the collateral damage and the uh, impacts uh, that a lot of people don't necessarily, I I feel, think about. When um, we talk about mass incarceration in a global sense, we know... Um, you know, 2.4 million people, approximately, are incarcerated in this country, and, and a lot of people think it stops there, right? They don't think about the children or um, spouses, the, the spouses, the moms, the brothers and sisters, and, and and for the more. And when you talk about that in certain communities where it's so prevalent, that you talk about entire communities as kind of missing men. And even at this point, missing mothers, right? Because it's not just males that go to jail anymore, mm-hmm. right? So with all the things in the fold, uh I've been doing this type of work or working with at-risk youth and the returning citizen population for 16 years, and primarily with the returning citizen population for the past 11 years. Mm-hmm. So and some people say, well, this guy, his name a lot, or he's... I've been at this a long time, and now kind of in my mind, the rest of the world is kind of catching up to where I've been for a while because this is something that's been so personal Mm -hmm. to me. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Uh, Um,
2: So all the elements that you mentioned kind of revolve around this one place. Let me know if I'm wrong, but 39 Hanover Place. (laughs) Yes, sir. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like everything that you just touched upon is related to that place in some way, shape, or form. That's
0: a great assessment. Yeah, that's home. Uh-huh. Always has been. Um, that's been uh the 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 source of my motivation, the, the the location of the love I got, the education I got, the nurturing I received. And it's now where I raise my family. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um very special place uh to me. And and, 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 and you know what's interesting about thirty nine Hanover, I feel like all across this great country, this great nation, there are 39 handovers everywhere, Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And that's why I feel like a story set there, which is Slug um, can be relatable to people all over this country. And whether you come from um, the most affluent community, or you come from the hood like I come from, um, I really sought out to write a very human story, Um, you know, as Slug is so much about some of the most, you know, grittiest shit street scenarios and situations one could imagine. Um, It's also about family and love and and humor and the relationships between a a boy and his parents or relationship between a boy and his community and how his community was able to wrap their arms and their hands around him and for him to embrace them and take the, the knowledge and watch their mistakes and help it guide his decisions, right? And I think a kid from anywhere can do that. That's why so many ways i tell people um to me slug is instructional right like it's like because i wanted to and it was so difficult to tell some of this stuff right super vivid yeah man it was it's i'm 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 honest in this book to a level which you know because i didn't let anybody read it prior to me and my co-author wow. kevin reeves we sculpted the book man and nobody read it till it was here <laughs> Cause I wanted, to, I wanted to stay. I felt like if I let someone else, even my, even my dad, you know, I consulted with him, right? But I didn't let him know what was in the book because I felt like if I did that, or my mother, or my aunt, or anybody, um, I felt like in some ways they would be like, oh, "I don't know if you should say that." And I wanted it to be honest. Pure. Yeah. All right.
2: Let's talk about your father and also your childhood, like. Yeah. Um, so many places to start, but just the community of 39 Hanover. Um, talk about you as a kid and that dynamic. That. That dynamic of your mother dropping you off, and you know you searching for your father, and what you, yeah. how your father played a pivotal role in Hanover and D.C. in general.
0: Sure enough, um, so so Hanover Place is the uh, what some of us would call like the Garden of Eden as it relates to the cocaine trade in D.C. Uh, this is pre-crack, so we're saying late '79 into 1980, which is when I was born. Um, Cocaine became the the first open-air drug market for cocaine in the city and would stay that way up until 1985. So um, the book opens in this place, this small street in Northwest Washington, close to the intersection of North Capitol and New York Avenue, um, where it was, you know, 24-7, 365 days a week, bustling with people. And um, I'm getting out the car to find my dad through this maze of people, through, you know, addicts and dealers and people selling hot items and, you know what I mean? Right. Um, and that's how it was. Uh, my father, Cornell Jones was... Um, the 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 kingpin if you will of, of our block and my right. father was under him so my dad and my dad but out of that group um, my dad was the youngest but he had such a, um, a, a powerful role in in what was going on on Hanover. He was really
2: hustling yeah, when was, a lot of the other people were slacking off or going out to party. Sure Your enough, I mean, but really that's work
0: in. so how he really even got into hustling as a starving young man just standing around the hustlers at that time. Mm -hmm. And as they started to ascend and make money, you know, they would want to enjoy the spoils of their labor. So if it was a concert or they wanted to take a girl out on a date or whatever, they just wasn't as hungry as they once was. And they would tell him, hey, Tony, you know, there's stashes over here and if somebody come through, serve them, right? And so he started to do that because he just wanted to make money. He used to go to the store for those guys just so he can eat. Right. I mean. Right numbers and stuff
2: like right, that too, exactly. Right, exactly. Whatever
0: they needed him to do. Mm-hmm. But this one particular day, the boss, Cornell, came through and all the guys was gone. And he asked and this young guy. He know my dad, but he's like, Tony, where everybody at? Oh, they went to the show. And he like, what you doing? Oh, I'm out here. They told me to serve whoever come through. And that's where his real career as a hustler came in. And then his creativity, ingenuity, and strength um helped him catapult to the top basically. Mm-hmm. And so moving forward, uh after Cornell Jones' imprisonment in 1985, uh, my dad would assume his position. Um and then but short Hanover would get shut down. And then, you know, he would still be doing his thing, but around 86, 87 is when him and Rayful Edmund would connect and um yeah and, and the rest is what they say is history in a way my father's drug dealing career started way before you know what i'm saying rayful, right. him for rayful him meeting rayful or rayful even selling drugs in general i didn't and, know that and rayful is two years younger than my dad um so when my dad and rayful connect that really was at the inception of rayful's career right. but rayful didn't really um have to make his way through the ranks. Raefel came from a hustling family. You know, Raefel's dad was a big guy. Right. You know what I'm saying? Talk a little bit about Raefel because a lot yeah. of
2: listeners, we have listeners even in Africa who sure. probably heard his name for the first time, Absolutely. So put him on Well,
0: well Raefel Edmund is, is like the, the most uh, famous or infamous drug dealer in the history of D.C., one of the most famous drug dealers in the history of the country. Um, he, he, him and my father would go to jail um, as heads of a conspiracy in 1989. And uh, subsequently both of them would receive life sentences. But Rafa received the uh the CCE charge, which put him at the head of the conspiracy. Um, and then seven years after that, he would get uh indicted for continuing to sell drugs while in federal prison, um, on which he became an informant after that. But um, and he currently in the witness protection program and stuff like that. But this guy was uh, one of the most charismatic um, alluring individuals that you would want to meet. You know what I'm saying. Um, him and my, my dad' personality was very opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad's very kind of stoic and regal and very serious, but he had to be because he was so he was always the youngest guy. Right. You know what I'm saying. So he had to kind of you know always be serious because he didn't want the older guys to take advantage of him. You know things like that. But Rayful was was different. Man. He was young and wild and charismatic and funny, a jokester. You know right. what I'm saying. Um, um and some other stuff, you know what I'm saying? Um, but 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 what this their case would be the biggest case in the history of of uh Washington before or since, okay. you know, and we talking about them being housed at Quantico military, I mean Marine base and things of like that. And I don't really think any I'm talking about. You can go look at the Italian mob. You can look at um, any other faction in 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 the underworld in the history of the United States. Um, outside of like you know enemy combatants with terrorism and things like that, can you really point to any anybody being housed at a Marine base, at a military installation? It just don't happen. And really, I don't even understand how they could allow young black men from Washington. My father was 26, Raeford was 24, and I and I say their age on purpose because I feel like that gets lost in the tales. You know, have you thinking these are 50, 50, 40, 50 year old men and they weren't. You know, really young men. Um, started selling drugs for whatever the motivation was. And, you know, this thing grew. This thing called crack hit and this city in particular, people lose this as well. Yeah, crack epidemic happened all across America, but no city was affected by the crack epidemic like Washington. And you can look at the homicide rate, incarceration rates, infant mortality rates, you know, whatever stats you would need. Right. You to, still to give see the credence to what today.
1: I'm saying, huh? And you can still see the effects today? Well,
0: I, I think all of what we see in the day with the native Washingtonian, or most of it, and, and their despair can be directly related to that time. And see, and that's, that's it, right? And, and in so many ways I see myself as kind of the bridge between, like, I'm a survivor, You know what I'm saying? I'm a survivor in more ways than one, and and I think that's what's made me effective. And that's why I needed the right slug, though. I needed to foster a certain level of understanding of what people that's from here went through Mm -hmm. and why, you know, you look around, and and I say this a lot, but it's true. Even the places I get invited to, it's a limited amount of us as a Native Washingtonian. um, You look in our schools, you look in our leadership, you look everywhere. The Native Washingtonian, not there. It's a reason for that. It's not like people just didn't. I'm not saying it's conspiracy or whatever. I'm simply speaking to what we went through in the '80s and '90s and early 2000s in this city, really set up the stage for what we're seeing now.
2: Let's talk about that a little more because you mentioned seeing gentrification kind of start happening early on in Hanover. You mentioned Shaw, but you also mentioned Saint Eve for a multitude of other reasons. Saint Elizabeth's Hospital, for sure. Um, but let's talk about what's going on now because they kind of bulldoze in St. Ease and that whole campus and yeah, turning it into the Wizards' uh, Listen, practice bro. facility.
0: Listen, man, talk about it. I got a chance to speak at uh, at Broccoli City Festival, which an amazing festival, like right, a month ago, or whatever, over on um, at the pavilion they call it now. Mm-hmm. I was right in front of the, the building. I used to go see my mother, and for those who don't, St. Elizabeth was the psychiatrist, It still is. It's yeah. a still space over there, Psychiatric Hospital for Washington. You know what
2: I mean? Mm-hmm. They have public defenders there too. Yeah, so. probably, yeah now yeah. they got public right.
0: defenders. Historically, it was the, um the, what laymen would call the crazy house, the right. insane asylum, you know, stuff like that. And uh, after my father's incarceration, my mother basically lost her sanity. So through my years, she would go back and forth over there. But anyway, when I'm speaking to about 14,000 people, whatever was over there, um, I was just like, wow, like I used to go see my mother in this building. Like, and I wonder how many people at this 14,000 even understand where they are. Right. right. And it's like one one of the things that's happening on the on the West Campus, um, is now the it's now the um headquarters for Homeland Security, okay? So it's like a billion dollar project. We mm-hmm. literally built the headquarters of the of Homeland Security, the federal Homeland Security. Right. And on the East Campus, where where I was speaking of in terms of Broccoli City, um, they're doing a lot of redevelopment, you mm-hmm. know, and they're about to build um the Wizards practice facility. I think the Mystics, Mystics will play actual there, Stadium. Right. right. Yeah. They're gonna be it's gonna be a hotel. Storefronts, storefronts, you know, other retail and restaurants. And they're trying to bring economic development toward a um, and for those, you know, Ward 8 is the poorest community in Washington, um, it had, that Ward 8 has the highest unemployment rate in any area in the country. So just for some context of what kind of area it is, so, um, and Ward 8 is sort of the last frontier um, in Washington as it relates to gentrification. And I feel like this um, th- this thing is going to be, what's going to spark, right? You know. Um, it's mass, exodus. Not, well, exodus of some, and it's mass migration right. of others, right. you know. And and I, at the same time, I think, you know, I I think some of that is needed there, though. It has to be a reason for people to come to it that don't live in 8. You understand what I'm saying? To bring I, in yes, money into the economy, yes, jobs, all right. the. What needs to be figured out and shout out to my guy Trayon white um he's running for the- years old. he won he won he won okay. he will be the next ward Day council member wow. which is an amazing feat he really from over there he of it you right. know and, and and honestly he's the this is the first time we've had native washingtonians on the council no native washingtonian has ever came from where he's come from and made it this is a significant event and, and i hope that I pray that he is able to keep a balance. I hope he able to see the the benefit of development, but but able to keep people, you know, foster a certain level of inclusion where people aren't just pushed
1: out. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, Tony. Um, you bring up a great point. Um, and thank you again for sharing your story. And I hope we can talk a little bit more about your story. But my question has to do with inclusive development. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that look like in real terms, in your opinion?
0: Yeah, I think it's like a multi-layered approach. Has to be a, um, a multifaceted approach. So, on one end, when you if you are in any leadership situation and you understand what's coming. Right. Then to me, I think that should, you should sound the horn to rev up the preparation for the residents. Right. So if I know we're going to be moving in the direction of uh, IT or building these builders or culinary, it's going to be a a certain need for people with a certain skill set. You start to develop the people around those skill sets. That's real workforce development. Beforehand.
2: It has to be.
0: Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Because mm-hmm. anything other than that is just trying to match people and find a job behind but the we, curve. Yes, because mm-hmm. what we we've, we've been doing this for 20 years in D.C. What happens is that it's like, oh, here's a thousand jobs, but guess what? We have nobody that qualifies right. that live in right. the city. Mm-hmm. Right. So when are we going to learn that if you know two years ahead of time, or maybe more, that this is going to happen, then you bring together, you know, your training community, education community, social service community, start getting these people people in these certain communities ready. You start looking at, even if we start talking about what we're doing in our high schools, what we're doing with the return to citizen population, we gotta show some foresight. We can't keep being reactive, we gotta be proactive. So when the development happens, I think you'll have people ready to step into the opportunities that arise. The other side of the equation for me is to start to promote businesses or people in those communities on the entrepreneurial track where they can develop and create businesses that can either provide a service or that can coincide with whatever is next, and then they can in turn hire people from those communities, you know what I mean? And that hasn't been happening, or enough of that hasn't been happening.
1: So I'm gonna be a little bit controversial because- um, I like controversy. Yeah, and whenever we talk about, especially as African Americans, reparations, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, we get a lot of pushback. But i think what we're speaking to here has to do with reparations we know that many of us live in communities that have been deliberately created through policy to to be unequal on so many terms whether you're talking about education economics access to affordable health care so can you just talk a little bit about the context of reparations in D.C., what needs to happen in this city to repair all of the the harm that has been done through policy?
0: Well, Mark, this is what I'm going to say, though. I think we would have to have that conversation in a more uh, national context, because honestly, bro, here, <laughs> this, this, the whole joint was black. It wasn't no, you couldn't live here. You. Policy says you had, it, that didn't impact us as in ways that it did people in other places. In D.C., you had free room. You could live where you wanted. You had black mayors, black police chiefs, black judges, black teachers, black doctors. But the street element here was so thick. It was so heavy that a kid saw all of that and you still wanted to be a hustler. Because nobody in your neighborhood became that. And so when we when I think about, we had a city where some, we had a point here when Burry was the mayor that 50% of the population was on some form of public assistance. 50%. Just think about that. Half the people here didn't work. So you had endless kids like me that grew up and didn't see people go to work. They could go to work could go to work it wasn't the same industry as we see here but you could graduate high school bro here
1: mm-hmm.
0: go right into a job in the federal the district government post office or anything and in but, but Metro but what happened was right because because the, the community the city was so desolate everybody was leaving a lot of those African Americans that did that they moved to PG county but again they
1: left. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I think that goes back to policy because in DC, just like in most other parts of the country, you did have redlining. Um, and that process of redlining helped to create wealth for some people and not mm-hmm. create wealth for other people. So for yeah, the Yeah, we didn't
0: own nothing, though. I think that's exactly. a great point, what you're saying, though, because, yeah. And one of the things to your point, I'm going to give you an example in my neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. And I write about it in Slub about 91, right? I was about 11. They did like this, just moved everybody off Hanover who didn't own, mm. right? And when they did that, we had about seven houses that were occupied for like three years. It was slowly but surely, they started to bring in, you know, middle class black folk started to buy, but you couldn't even sell a house on our block, right. though. Yeah. And part of when we talk about a policy piece, they let, and nobody talks about this part. They allow things to go on in this city in terms of, you know, the streets or what have you, where the complete, neighborhoods just completely left to just operate on mm-hmm. their own. You know what I'm saying? So, so, and I only say that to, to bring up this point, that I've realized in that process, as I got older, they're like, wow, all my friends who their moms grew up with my mother and father or whatever. They've been on that block 30 but they never owned anything. And I think that happened a, and that's why I brought up the point about the um the public assistance so much If Black DC was on section 8 people that you thought owned a houses cuz they lived there so long, they never owned. Right. So somebody owned the house though, right? And be, they would sit on it because they couldn't sell it. Right. I heard this is not to my. I, I wasn't involved in, but I heard stories of like it was house on Hanover selling for like literally like fifteen hundred dollars, a home in essentially downtown DC. I mean our neighborhood is literally right there. in the middle of the city, right? Major streets. Yep. That's so crazy that for fifteen hundred, but they, because the, nobody wanted to. But who knew that what we see today would happen? If you would have told me even ten years ago that. A house my the house next to me was sell for six hundred and seventy grand, and that might be on the low end I would tell you, it's no way it's no way it's no way that happens and even now like they just had a a dude they shot like four people um at like five o'clock like last Tuesday five p m um around my way on my corner, and that house still won't sell for <laughs> 607 mm-hmm. like that's the dynamic we have in dc where you know it's just you know the housing market is 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 booming and i'm just um i i think about it, maybe yeah people had no idea what would come I, I don't think any i mean it's just what the washington is like and top five, and cost of living. Mm-hmm. They say you have to make $119,000 mm-hmm. to pay for a two-bedroom apartment. Top
2: three in terms of where millennials want to move. Yes, everybody's
0: so. coming here, right? Mm-hmm. You got to really think about that, juxtaposed to what I grew up in, up until, I'm 36, so up until 30. This is, all of this is new, and we get in the city that everything's new. Every, nothing is like what it looked like 10 years right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know I mean, like, so, um, yeah, I don't know as far so to answer your question, sorry to ramble about that, but to talk about reparations, I just feel like, um, the conversation is a bit different here, just because, um, you know, I, I, I think what I would like to see more than anything is a school system, a, tr- uh, um, training system, a real workforce development system developed. you know what I mean? I really would. I would like to see that. And I would like to see some real serious money put into like outreach and community development. And to me, that would be reparations enough for the D.C. resident. I think that's what's needed. It's missing. And now you got a city that's literally running away from the native Washington. If you if you look at unemployment rates, homeless rates, I mean incarceration it, rates, I mean, it over, yeah. absolutely incarceration rates. That ain't none of that is changed. And if you if you broke that down, and you took a lot of the amazing black millennials and people that went to Howard or GW or Georgetown or Catholic or UDC American, wherever, you took them out of the equation and you looked at native Washingtonians, under 40, I would like to see those stats. Mm-hmm. They would be alarming. You'd be talking about like somebody should be held accountable for like-
1: It's the tale that. of two Washingtons. Yeah, <laughs>
0: man. And it's like, it's crazy. It's it's like, I remember when I was younger, you know, you had obviously war three, so it's always been white, you know, so uh upper war two, so Georgetown, anything mm-hmm. up Friendship Heights, Town, all that, little Capitol Hill, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you know. But outside of that, and that's why you don't really see a whole lot of like and then and then and then you really talk about DCPS. You know what I'm saying? You very you do not see too many white kids, Wilson or school without walls, you know what I mean? That's it. But like you think about how the, we had a school system that failed, you know, generations, right? Yeah. But you also had so such instability in the households, because I think it ain't it ain't fair to just give it all to the schools. Because if you ain't got no, if you can't tell, hey, Matt, get your act together. Or I'm gonna call your mother. or I'm gonna call your father. If I right. can't say that as a teacher, like, what I got?
2: I wanted to touch on that because, like <laughs> so, you mentioned, your father was incarcerated, and then your mother was going through uh, mental health mm-hmm. um, issues. So, like you said in the book, like you were partly raised by your grandma and your aunt sure Bonnie, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, like you mm-hmm. said. You know fathers aren't around because they're locked up or they're using mothers aren't around because you know they're going through it or they're also using so all you're left with is either raising yourself or being raised by a grandmother mm-hmm. or something like that so can you kind of detail a little bit more about how that affected you and how you see it affecting some of the younger yeah, people coming up i
0: mean that what you just said was just so normal right pop he not around for whatever reason just a deadbeat or he dead literally yeah. or he in jail or he getting high or he, he a drunk, whatever. Mom can't take the stress. Or even people that had a mother may have a job, but she had work all the time. So you right. still raising yourself, right? We know that story. But some people, I had a grandmother and an aunt that both had a job, right? And my, my situation was this. This is my maternal grandmother, so it's my mother's side. My mother's side of the family in my neighborhood always uh, had more than everybody else. You know what I mean? My grandfather was a gangster. You know what I mean. So they had means, like more means than everybody else in my in my neighborhood. So that didn't necessarily change. Um, and but people had grand. Man, we grew up in a time where grandma was getting high too, or grandma just couldn't keep up. She went through what she went through with her kids, and now they all running around. She went through the trauma of them dying, going to jail, getting high. By the time it, the grandkids get teenagers, 12, 13, she done threw her hands
2: out.
0: Yeah. And she can't do nothing with it. Like I come up with a crew that didn't have to come in the house, man, when we, after we was like 10 years old. Like I be trying to talk to people about what that really looked like. So like, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm in the house, I'm doing my homework, or I'm about to go to bed. Like at least I, I did that. Even my mother and her, you know, schizophrenia, you know what I mean? So what she did before that really took a toll of her, she built a certain level. I had a, a respect and a reverence for my mother, though. I'm not going to not come in. She tell me, come in the house, I'm coming in the house. My father, the same way he called, he was in Long Park, California in a federal prison. But what he did the first nine years of my life, when he called, like, bring your ass in the house, <laughs> I'm coming in the house. Or do your homework, I'm going to do my homework. Now, as I got a little older, I spread my wings a little bit, but still, that was... That foundation was laid. Like, my friends had none of that. Right. They had none of that. And 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 they were eleven and twelve and had to worry about how they were gonna eat. And that was real for them every day. Nobody to tell them to come in the house. Auntie get high, mommy get high, uncle get high, daddy get high. Like literally. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and God knows what else they went through and experienced that I don't need, that I didn't see. And as a man, I can think like, wow, you know what I mean? I can seen imagine, lot, too, so you, you know. feel me? And I didn't seen a whole lot. Um, but when you get neighborhoods filled with those kind of young men, we had a city filled with that. Bro. That's why it was so volatile in the 90s and the 2000s. That's why, because you had young men growing up, so hurt, so abused, so, so, so unloved, not just by their families, but by the system, if you will. And was just left to govern themselves. My friends had two and three kids by when we was fifteen. That kind of thing, bro.
2: Trauma. Yes. Trauma to prison pipe. Alarm. Yeah, man, going
0: mm-hmm. to gi- and, and one of the things in this mass incarceration conversation, we gotta start bringing up. None of my friends that, I ain't gonna say none, nah, but most of my friends that went to jail, they ain't go to jail for the first time as an adult. They mm-hmm. was going to jail since we was eleven. Mm-hmm. Juvenile incarceration is a serious thing. Dudes just graduating. Nobody really talking about the juvenile justice system in that way. Uh-huh. Kids are just graduating to the adult system, man. Much. It is, bro, literally. It's an incubator. I do a lot of work with uh, over at YSC, which is the Youth Service Center, with the DC uh, Department of Rehabilitative <laughs> Services, um, and at New Beginners. And you, you can see it. You can see mm-hmm. it, and they understand it even that early that they talk about, like, when they go to the feds, those thoughts of what it's going to be like. And, like, we all, you know, thought about that, too. It was like that was part of it. That's why one of the chapters is called the Rites of Passage. Right. Was, you know well, what I'm, I'm saying? Right because that of that, right because those type of things became a part of your maturation process, right? And you look forward to it almost because that was a part of you getting your stripes. And, um, yeah, man, it's just like... That culture, the culture that was developed out of that time, Mm -hmm. the norms that were created out of of that time, is something that, you know, um, that's why we see all this violence in the city right now. Um, It's that same culture. That culture was birthed during that time. You know what I mean? That's what crack did, man. It took the the child, I ain't even gonna say the young man or woman, the child, and put them at the head of their household.
1: Well, you know, and I also want to bring up the fact that that culture was also inculcated again in our communities because of policy. Oh, yeah. You know, when you look back at the um, Nixon administration, Um, And when you look at the rise of incarceration in this country, it happened right after the unrest of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. We all know in D.C., A Street and U Street went up in flames. There were protests all over this country. And the way our government responded was to say, okay, let's neutralize and control this population through the so-called war on drugs. drugs. How would communities like D.C. look differently if we would have dealt with the war on drugs as a health issue instead of as a crime issue? Oh, man.
0: Wow, that's the million dollar question I mean I believe it would have been it'd be totally different people would first of all starting with the heroin out, out of the time that you're talking about it was first it was the heroin epidemic right the Nixon the war on drugs and it was heroin's the drug of choice right If we were to look right then you know because that like you said those norms and those trends started right there for real that it was you know daddy going to jail people getting on it all that kind of stuff grandma having to take care of everybody um if we would have treated people, we looked at his treatment, not sent people to prison, gave people the proper resources. And it's funny, I think in the 70s though, prison, and I know, I ain't gonna think, prison was much more rehabilitative in the 70s. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? That still had a rehabilitative outlook. Mm-hmm. But as time went on, that went away. And this war on drugs just grew. You know what I mean? And, and, and I think you would have families more intact, you would have communities more intact, you would have people uh more self sufficient, more business the whole thing. Infrastructure would I, still absolutely. be absolutely and on. you would have a black middle class still. You would have um generations you know, of wealth or generations but like yes. Revenue at least. You and and, I mean? and at least we might not say wealth in the sense of being like wealthy, but you would have homes being right. passed down, businesses being passed down. Uh I think the policy around the war on drugs and then obviously the birth of mandatory minimums and things of that nature that just, you know, the the crack versus powder, cocaine disparity, these kind of policies that truly, truly, truly um, just took things to to another level For, for communities that were already, you know, poor. For, in, in a lot of cases, you know what I mean? Um, and when you talk about, even back to the whole redlining piece, when you think about like my grandfather was born in like Foggy Bottom in Georgetown, you know what I mean? He grew up in that area. And and that was like the first, that was all black at one point. Mm-hmm. But people had to move to Hanover and Southwest and Berry from, from neighborhoods like that based on some of those, you know what I mean? But it was such a, they carved out like all that up there. And the rest of the city was just left. Okay, whatever, y'all can kind of do y'all. But along those same lines, you literally see that you wasn't gonna go in, you know, Georgetown or Friendship Heights and, and do any of that kind of. stuff. Right. They wasn't gonna allow it. Um, and then, but I think obviously coming into the '80s with mandatory minimums, like there's nothing that's been more impactful as like around policy and the war on drugs as mandatory minimums. And that's locally and nationally in terms of driving up the rate of incarceration. Then, obviously, the three strike piece that came behind right. that and tough on crime, right. this ideology, and the demonization of, if that's a word, of the the young African American drug dealer. dealer. Yeah. Right. Right. Specifically, nobody. He had the pantheon of criminality. But How does that happen? That, that's the and, policy. But, and but also, two. with that. Yeah, and sure. one, and one, yeah, Yeah, I mean, because right.
1: with that being said, this idea of black criminality, um, first it started with the black crack drug dealer, but then it just went out to every to any, young black yeah, male. Right.
0: Because you are a potential crack dealer, and right. every and then also you're you're potentially valid. Every crack dealer is the most violent man alive. Like these things were pushed onto us, and. We internalized them, and for some people, it might have been the God-honest truth, but it became, it had to, every black man had to wear, no matter who he was or right. what he did. You know what I'm saying? And then you see it again when you start talking about sense. It's like, if you, you look at somebody, say somebody who kills five people, eight people, right, but he doesn't get um, uh, the death penalty, right? He gets life without parole. He killed five people. So you, so you're telling me somebody who did not, who got a nonviolent drug offense, how can somebody that has a nonviolent drug offense have the same sentence as that person? When you just think about it in those kind of terms, mm-hmm. right? It's not to say that that person that's so cracked shouldn't have went to jail, but how does that person go to jail for the rest of their life? how is that even, Without
2: parole anything like
0: that I, I, listen I, I don't pass listen i don't you know I, I don't pass judgment it's not my 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 job right to judge but every day I deal with people that kill people rape women molested children whatever but if they come before me I got to help them move forward in their life and not do those things again that's what I do right mm-hmm. but I've seen dudes that kill their own grandmother you know what' I'm saying and you in front of me in freedom. You tell me somebody who's ending you, if you think about just the, the act of selling drugs, right, who's the victim? I mean, who would you say is the victim in that situation?
2: So many victims, but I say the user is the right. victim, right? The
0: user. Mm-hmm. It's the only crime where the victim plays a part in the crime. Like you sell drugs, you don't make somebody buy drugs. I never. I was eleven. I was eleven years old. Homespun. Every day of my life since I was eleven, I'd had somebody ask me, "Do I got something right in my neighborhood? How I'm worse than him? If I if, if I had what he wanted, how I'm no bad guy? If that's my uncle or my brother." How am I as the drug dealer any worse than the person that's requesting acquiring me? it, and I'm not again, I'm not taking saying it's selling drugs is you you you're innocent, you broke the law, you should go to jail, but how does that person become the worst criminal in the world, and that's kind of what America did for the young black man they said if you so crack just that disparity it was it's eighteen to one now, but it was a hundred to one, 1. yeah. For the same drugs, it's like French fries and a baked potato, right? right? (laughs) Like what? Like it's just no different, even chemically. Like it's the that's told us cocaine and crack, it's the same thing. So, like, how do you, how do you explain that? And even in a time where we're supposed to be rectifying, it should be one to one, Mm -hmm. but it's still a disparity. You know what I mean? You know,
1: I, I honestly think, from my research, that the explanation is that this current system was put in place as a form of social control. What you had happening was the unrest from the civil rights movement, but then simultaneously, especially when you're, maybe not so much DC, but other industrialized cities, you had these industries outsourcing the means of production to developing countries. So you had this huge segment of urban youth, mainly black, who were living in communities with now no access to jobs, mm-hmm. poor educational systems. So, you know, when we look talk about these disparities, I think it's important to note that that was created and it was created to control. And, and for example, the War on Drugs was never really a War on Drugs. I mean, when you look at it statistically, white and black people have never used or sold drugs at disproportionately. Right. It wasn't yeah. exactly. Right. That's right. Uh, Equal race, but it was black communities that were targeted under this rules of the so-called war on drugs, but it was really um, a form of control of a population that was a threat to the American government.
0: And, And what else did that turn into? That this, this targeting of African-American communities of color, and I write about this in Slug as well, you see in communities, some of the industrialized communities in places where it used to be steel country and coal country mm-hmm. have morphed into prison country mm-hmm. as those industries have, industries have died, yeah. right? So that that warned it created a, a whole industry onto itself. And I just chart the federal prisons that's up and down Appalachia. You no, know, I ain't even mentioned the state prisons. Mm-hmm. So you know what I mean. So so we talk about Western Pennsylvania, you know Western Virginia, West Virginia, Western Maryland. Yeah. These places are filled with just federal prison. not the federal prison, the like proliferation. Jobs. Yes,
2: they need jobs because
0: the mill. You used to grow up and work at the mill, or grow up and work at the mine. Right. Now you grow up and work at the prison, right. and that's and I'm just saying that to say, that's a result of just what you're talking about. Yeah. Now
1: politically, what happens is that. Um, when you take the census in urban communities and when the government thinks about where to allocate resources in places like DC or Philadelphia or New York, our population is missing. Our population is in somewhere upstate New York or West Your Virginia, you know, or somewhere else. And and politically they're being counted there mm-hmm. and not from the communities where they're from. So, I mean, you know, I think it's important, You know, we're talking about mass incarceration. We're talking, we're talking about it from a systems perspective. Um, For me, it's very important just to get our listeners to know um, that this is not just about crime. It's really about a social system that was created through policy. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist also, but um, it's well stated that in the Nixon administration, they specifically said the war on drugs is about neutralizing blacks and the left.
0: It was a farce. It mm-hmm. was a farce in the way that they presented it. And they, mm-hmm. they, they came clean recently about it. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I, I mean, I think that's very, very important, especially when talking about the early 80s in this city, um, as for, for a lot of women, especially, it was like, I think it was an easier route to jobs or whatever. But I don't think, a lot of the young black men, like like my father, whatever, they didn't see, you know, that it was a whole lot of opportunities. So I, I also, I, I, I cringe sometimes when I hear, the drug dealer gets painted is just this kind of greedy person who got into, you know, selling drugs because he thought he was gonna become a millionaire. Like that's especially the earlier guys. Like right. that had never happened before. They that's not why they got into it. That's what was available to them. Right. That was outside, they didn't have anybody coming in their communities to recruit them for a job. or It was a means know, to an it end. It was a means to, and that's simply that. That it was the is, only option just, available. You know? At least and they're and there. not even given, when they get before these judges and stuff like that, they're not even given that carte blanche, nobody even, that doesn't even matter, <laughs> you know, it's like you just, you deserve to go to jail for the rest of your life, man, you know what I mean? And that's a, that's a dangerous thing.
2: Mm. All right, so there's so many topics I also want to touch on. Um, But you talked about social control, Mark, um, from a high level. Let's talk about it from the direct level, law enforcement. You talk a lot about um, Officer Ortiz. So I wanted to hear it in your words, kind of your first kind of encounters with him and then how it all kind of came
0: full circle. (laughs) Yeah, so this dude, man, in 97, my neighborhood changed. Like, um, well, the city changed the, the police district that patrolled my neighborhood. So, you know... Uh, one day I was on my I was on a bike. And I was coming from up uh, up the street, a neighborhood called Florida Park, and I come around Hanover, and he just come through the alley. and He almost hit me with the car, but he jumped out of the car, slammed me on the car. You know what I mean? It was crowded, summer day. You know what I mean? Got my hands on the hot hood. They've been riding around probably five hours. It's already ninety-seven degrees outside. The hood is like putting your hands on the stove. But he holding my hands on the car. And, you know, whatever, searching me and all that. So from that point on, um, every time he saw me, it would be like, you know, like just, I mean, he just pressed me out every time. Now, getting, the, the jump I was coming or getting searched by the police at that point, when I was 17, that was just like a norm. That happened to us every day of my life since I was 11. We already knew the drill. Like, let them search them, search, search us, and go ahead about their business. I mean, that's what we would want them to do. But this guy, he was different. He was like a rogue cop. He was robbing guys. He was, you know, illegally searching guys. He go a lot of dudes used to hide they stash like in their drawers. Like, he in your you know truck. But I wasn't hustling. So for me, for me, I'm like, bro, listen, man. You know,
2: kept bothering. You.
0: Kept. He had a vendetta for me because he was all. It was to him. He was like. You know, I was the guy he couldn't catch, right. and, and I guess I'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt and saying that every time he came around, I was out there, and the level I had a, a real high level of respect amongst my peers, and I know he saw that, you know what I mean. But it still was ridiculous how he was currenting with me, you know. And then, so long story short, this he was in our neighborhood like, you know, six years, you know what right. I mean, and then I would. Beginning to start to work and be outreach work, and we got this moment that I write about where I took my a group of youth to the police station because I was cool with his captain from doing the community work to to talk to her about her day and what her job looks like, and she bring in the vice squad and he come in and she raving about me and he can't believe like what, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So we had kind of that moment like yeah, but you know. Um, it's not like a situation where I like ever like forgave him in a way. It was just like, you know, you accept like it is what it is. I only prayed that that interaction with me and him knowing who I really was, right? He could change the way he interacted with young black men. But to him, again, back to all that we've been talking about, I was a drug dealer to him. Mm-hmm. Period. Period. I was a drug dealer. I was just like everybody else in my neighborhood. I was a drug dealer. You know what I'm saying? And so, um, and, and it's funny because, you know, I wrote this from two thousand twelve to two thousand thirteen. That story was there just because it was real, not because of anything that will unfold with the Trayvon Martin and then Mike Brown type of thing. Right. But it just speaks to that's what young black men going through every day in this like from again, eleven years old in my neighborhood, the police—that was the relationship we had with the police. They jump out, they search, they go. I mean, it's been time with friends of mine and went to jail. They find a gun, they find drugs. It wasn't this, but it's out there, and we out there, and somebody going to jail for it. The police used to rob us. They we gambling, shooting dice. They jump out, they take everybody money. You think they turn that money in? You know what I'm saying? It was, but it was like. Even to the point where, and I'm gonna give you the, the collateral damage of, of growing up how I grew up. And I'm at a, I'm a citizen, right? I'm a, I'm a professional, you know. And I've been a professional for a long time now. But it's, it's, it's interesting how your foundation stay with you. Like this happened a while ago, but with me and my neighbor, who's white at the time, she was white girl named Jen. We heard some shots, right? So shortly after that, uh, the police came down the street, and they were like, oh, "You hear some shots." <laughs> so it's only it's her and I outside. So she was like, "She was like, yeah, I think." But she's looking, at <laughs> she's looking at me because I'm I'm like a mute. I'm not. I don't That's even look at him. I'm not saying anything. right? <laughs> so he was like. He, and then she's like, "Well, I think they were like, you know, around back." And she's like, "Right, Tony." I was like, "Oh, I don't know." So he he left, right? So when he left, she's like, "Oh my God, Tony, am I a snitch?" <laughs> I thought that was so funny because I was like, "No, no, 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 you did the right thing. I just can't do that." And she's like, "Why?" I was like, "Well, I can, but I just don't know how." And I'm,
2: I'm your experience with them was. Is- yeah, and I was different. trying to explain to her, yeah.
0: right? Like, that's, and I was like, in my experience, I mean, you know what I mean? My friends got killed and they was on the corner or around the corner. Right. And they ain't catch nobody. They ain't lock nobody. They ain't even right. come on my friend's body lay out in the hot, burning sun for 20 minutes. I've been through that. Right. So it creates this kind of thing. And I'm still trying to learn how to be a citizen, though, man. Like, my wife is a citizen, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm still working on that. Because I'm still growing because I didn't got to a place in life where I never, and nobody from where I'm from ever got to. So I don't even know. I'm still winging it in a lot of ways about stuff like that.
2: I want to ask you about that, too, in terms of now that you have a child and and how that your perspective is being carried on. But before I get to that, you mentioned... uh, you know, your friend's perspective of what she thought was snitching or whatever, right? But you mentioned in the book how when you were at Gonzaga, uh, a friend of yours was like, basically is your lifestyle like it is, like they portray in the movies, Yeah. right? So I wanted you to talk about that a little bit in terms of what the outside world, quote unquote, perceives us to be in terms of how we live. And also you talk about it in music, in terms of what comes first, the chicken or the egg, in terms of hip hop and is it in influencing the violence and mass incarceration. So, I know this is a very general question, but I just want you to kind of take it away.
0: Nah, bro. Like, I I think that's a great question because I feel like, you know, um, people from the outside of the community, like the ones I grew up in across this nation, they see those communities as just like, you know, what they see in the movie or what they hear in the song. They don't they don't factor in the love and the humanity. I mean that's part of why slug is written in the way that it is to show that those things prevail there. It's just it's so hard for us based on a lot of things outside of us, like policies and things like that, that 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 stop us from living the life that you live. Because they people think it's just about, oh we all have the same choices. No, we don't. Mm-hmm. No, we don't, man. And sometimes we fall for that. You know, the ones of us that get that make it, we say, Oh, well, I I made it. It's all it well, it is about the choice. What about when your choices, your choices are good and bad and mine's bad and worse? It's not the same, you not you know what I mean? And it's not not to say that you can't assent. And what I was you know, my, my high school classmate was predominantly white, predominantly wealthy, you know. And so when he asked me that question, like, because Gonzaga was right. Um, by and Corder, so when you looked out our class when you could see the projects. He like Tony. Is it like you know what we see in the movies? I'm like, nah, not every day. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like not every day, bro. You know we sometimes. You know my day is just like yours, and we got. Parents, we got brothers and sisters. We have family. You know, it's not all violent, but it can. It, it happens. You know, there, that element is that element is there. Yeah. But it's people there. It's not like you know, we're not lab rats, man. It's people. You know what I mean? I'm tired of us being studied. Uh, and uh, and to me, Slug was a way for for me to tell our story one of us to tell our story. I see, sometimes I see research and I listen to the people who do it sometimes. I'll be like, yo, you don't even know what you looking at though. Like, so you did a study, but do you even know what it's saying back to you? But it's no, because you don't have context. And the people are just that. Something to look at. You missed it that they're people and they have, you know, layers and history. you know, human. Yeah, human beings just like you so um yeah i think um there's a lot of misconceptions and i think some so much of when you start talking about even forces greater than us that even when you talk about media okay. and entertainment they've um sort of told just a similar narrative i mean i, I promise you if if i ever If anybody ever contacted me about making a movie about slug, it will be about my father and Rayful Edmund. It won't Mm -hmm. be about what I did.
1: Mm -hmm. It won't. Mm -hmm. I had a friend who worked for BET who once told me that the biggest consumer of BET Uncut uh, were white females between the ages of 17 and 22. So when that content gets put out there, Um, It's not a representation of us. It's a representation of, in my opinion, a white supremacist idea of what blackness is, especially blackness in urban communities. Yeah, and Um, that is
0: just those things. Like, I'm not, like, I'm the guy that's saying, just tell... The full story. Mm -hmm. Don't tell that is like certain things that and I'm a huge, you know, hip hop fan, you feel me? Like some of that, you know, I like I like to hear it because it's like I identify with that. That does have a tell tell the other part. Let's just make a song about mom crying.
1: Uh
0: Tell a song about taking your man's son to visit his father in jail. Mm Tell us, make a song about the dude that from your hood that graduated from Morehouse. Like s- stop with the, you know, just selling this rah, one rah. thing. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm I'm over that. Like, like, and when your mo when your music missing the pain, you know what I'm saying? So tell what it look like when you see your man get shot in his face. Like, talk about that. You don't talk about that though. And you not you can't be Superman in every record, bruh. Right. None of us are that. All right. And you can have all the guns, and you want to talk about this how your man got killed when he had the gun on him.
2: Talk about that because Wale got a lot of flack early on, right, from yeah. DC because he didn't kind of portray that kind of archetype. He was right. more poetic with his, more right. about his experiences. Can you talk about your relationship with DC artists and the DC or N- Nothing initiative that you kind of brought to life?
0: No doubt. In 2010, um, I started this thing called DC or Nothing um, that was was mainly about. Galvanizing our area to support Wale, I felt like they weren't supporting him in the way that they were supposed to or should be. Um, I felt like, obviously, he's the talent that he is, and, and that um, his success also could have positive ramifications for a lot of these other guys who had musical interest, which they were they couldn't see they were only gonna go as far as he go. He was the leader, um, so I wanted I, I was because I had before that I had put out a few fires. Things related to him, it's like, yo, like, what y'all doing? Y'all right. trying? And because he didn't, you know, uh, represent, you know, the streets, if you will. I think I felt like people was like taking their pics, like they they would say certain things to him that I know they wouldn't say to another guy. Like they wasn't even built like that. Not trying that I was trying them. to be on a tough time, right?
2: Yeah.
0: But I never let nobody take it. And at the time, me and him too was just forging a, a real relationship. You know what I mean? Um, but anyway, moving forward. You know, people kind of got the drift, and obviously he's done what he's done. Um, you know, he's about to release his fifth album or whatever. And you've also seen people like Sha Glizzy and Fat Trail and Light Show and a lot of other guys come. You know, not only on the local level but on the national level. You understand that rap music, hip hop, didn't exist here. You know, in that level, it was just go go. You know, you wanted to be a rapper in my age group. You was like. Wackest dude ever. You was in a go-go band. A, yeah, you had, if you rap, you had to be in a go-go band. Right. Otherwise, what you, you was trying to be like a New York dude or a down? So we didn't play that. That's right. just that just wasn't a thing. So hip hop is very new in Washington. Um, but you had people like you know Garvey and Booby right. like that. That were they were just a little early. I Yeah, they were. And and obviously you know. You got Tabby and uptown, Tab, but, but Tabby and Wale were the two that really took, you know, D.C. to a more national scene, mm-hmm. a broader scene. But why people didn't identify with them so much was mainly because D.C. is such a street town that they felt like, you know, our rapper had to be a street rapper and right. neither one of them were that. Right. So that's why I felt like I came in to... Um, to just give support and, and I spoke for that element, right? I was the ambassador for that element, but in a positive way, but I've represented that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, I also saw it in my mind could be something that could lead to some strong economic development for the area. Like if we ever had a real DC sound that artists from around the country would come here to record. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at what music did for Atlanta. Look what Face did for Atlanta. Like really, and, and we have no excuse not to do that. Yeah, I know, but it it is a process, I think, yeah. and I think it's. I mean, we light years ahead of. I mean, you think about when Beyonce came here last week or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And DJ Khaled, you know, he opens for her, and Wale. I'm not not putting Wale and Shy in the same category, but Wale and Shy Glizzy opened up as a part of Khaled's set. You know what right. I'm saying? Right. I'm telling you that five years ago, 10 or well, 10 years ago, 15, 20, that never happened. Right. We didn't have anybody to bring out. Right. We had no hits. We didn't have no hits. <laughs> we didn't have anybody on a national scene like that. You know what I'm saying? So when, oh, when Beyoncé was in her tour or something one time, the last tour, and she was dancing the awesome, which is shock Disney's song. Yeah, shock he from 37th. Right, 37. <laughs> he from as bad as it get. <laughs> It crosses the 37, you go to turns 37 Ridge Road Southeast, it don't get no worse than that. And the most famous person on earth understands that he exists. Mm-hmm. So-, so. When I sit back and and I sit there and I be like, I get what that means, you know what I mean?
2: Like, I saw an Instagram photo, I don't know we're going to change the topic, but I saw the Instagram photo. It was Wale, Shy Glizzy, Kevin Lyles, who's big in the music industry, mm-hmm. and Jay, and ho- all behind the stage just chopping it up. Oh, I'm like, yo, that's beautiful. That, DC get none, DC that was artists a, that's what I now. dreamt
0: about. I dreamt about when, when, when I came up with DC and or, or whatever, it was that kind of stuff that, that I dreamt about. You know what I mean? Like, that, That to me was what bringing people together, unifying folks, squashing beefs, trying to get people to see the bigger picture, all that was for that. I'm not taking credit in any kind of way for it. I'm just simply saying though that that was what I intended. That's what I prayed for. Right. You know what I mean. That that. So now, what happens? How does that trickle down in terms of what I do every day? Is that it's young men and women in this city that now know that that is possible. And you know, people may need managers and engineers and producers and tour managers or whatever. Infrastructure. Infrastructure to create, you know, jobs. So that was kind of, and particularly people that are formerly incarcerated, because you know my thing was that you know i feel like in this whole conversation of mass incarceration that reentry is more important than reform mm-hmm. to be honest and um to hip hop's credit a lot of people don't talk about it but hip hop has been the vanguard in ex-offender reentry as it relates to giving people opportunities post incarceration you know what i mean i think the rest of the business community need to model itself after hip hop in that way so you know dc and nothing was really predicated on trying to create an industry here that could employ men and women that were formerly incarcerated so
2: Let's, let's let's wrap up the incarceration piece because in the book you mentioned that you get the opportunity okay so your father's in prison in california he gets relocated to maryland yeah so then time passes but you get an opportunity to serve on a panel in the same prison that your father is so can you paint that picture for yeah, us yeah
0: man in 2011 this actually the irony of this it happened on his birthday so october 18 2011 part of my job um is to go into federal prisons and talk to dc inmates about resources and services available to them right post-incarceration so we was at my father's prison on his birthday and um uh A couple months before that, I had won the Steve Harvey uh, Hoodie Award for the best community Mm -hmm. leader or whatever. So it was right. it was great, just a great time. And um, I got a chance to just, my dad, you know, you guys got, he'd been in, I sent him pictures and all that, but he never got a chance to see me in my professional, you know, um, just being a professional, being me at work, right? right? Stuff that we may take a, take for granted. My dad never seen me go to work, never seen me at work. You know what I mean? And so he got to experience me as a professional. And it was one of the most uh, important moments. Um, since then, though, we actually had a more important moment. Where we, uh, in December, I, I had an opportunity to go up there and interview him for a PSA that the city is doing aimed at at-risk youth. So I had, got a chance to go into prison again his, and interview him, you know, which was super cool. But that moment was like so surreal, man. I mean it was the closest we we felt free almost because mm-hmm. the, you got think for the past 27 years our interaction have been in visiting halls mm-hmm. you know this was just it was at the prison but at least it was in another part of the prison it wasn't in the visiting hall right. even the interview we just did was in the visiting hall <laughs> but anyway so it was yeah. just a really cool um experience man um something that i don't know if i don't really know if there's any other inmate you know uh son mm-hmm. relationship that 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 this type of thing has happened, too. You almost
2: were, weren't able to be on the panel, right? Yeah, because there was a discrepancy. Because, right? Yes.
0: The, the When, you know, they, I mean, you get cleared. I got cleared. They do this little NCIC form. I got cleared, obviously. Once I got there, they they're realized that right. I was on the visiting list as well. Yeah, like, whoa, is this a? <laughs> I I work for the federal government. So they're like, Yo, what, you know, something plot. has to be wrong about this, right? Because there's no way an inmate's relative should be allowed to... To come in in this capacity, so they held me up. They let listen. I was the first person to fill out my info because I know how it go, obviously, right? And I'm helping others, so they let everybody in. And as they, when they got to like the second from the last person, I was telling the other guy like, "Bro, they ain't gonna let me in, bro." He was like, "What you mean?" I'm like, "Listen, I I, I turned in my paperwork before all of y'all, and they calling everybody but me. And so when he got called, he was like." Thank you, right, you know what I mean? So and the assistant warden, they pulled my dad and asked him like, he's like, Yeah, that's my son. But like, this is his job. You know what I mean? So right. eventually they and when I got in, they were already started. Right. Yeah, they really was had yeah, went on with the show. But when 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 I got in, you know what I mean? I went last and um, yeah, Pops broke all the way down, you know what I'm saying? He was so mm-hmm. proud and just like, you mm-hmm. know. Again, man, these are things that we never thought could happen. I don't think people also understand, like when people in jail, and for that, my dad been in jail, man. At this point, 27 years. About there was 22 years. Most most bonds, all this stuff is eroded. It, it's the people be like, oh, they think about if they never interact with people in prison, they be like, oh yeah, you know, man, you know, can't can't, he, can't you take pictures or can't I mean like. Can't you take your phone in there? Or like, like, yo, this is prison, man. You can't. It's a lot of stuff people think you can do with, oh, you can't send them. Nah, bro, you can't send nothing. Can do that. It's federal prison, you know what I mean? at, at that. So, um, yeah, I, I, out of this whole situation, how this ordeal has been extremely uh, trying and, and it has so many negative impacts on my life, I am. All in all, though, I'm so grateful for the opportunities that I've had and, and, and the ability to still have a relationship with my father. But now, man, it's like I got to stay in the face of having my daughters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm Isabella will be mm-hmm. three this year, and I'm, I'm about to have another daughter Congrats. in September. Yeah, thanks, Congrats. man. Um, do I want them going into prison all day life? You know what I'm saying? Like, it has its effects on you as a person. It's trauma, man. And one day my daughter gonna ask me, daddy, why pop pop can't come with us? You Mm -hmm. feel me? And then Mm -hmm. I'm gonna have to, you know? And it's like, I deal with that. Like even up until my my, my wife was asking me, was I going up tomorrow? And I'm like, nah, I'm not tired.
1: Tony, I I wanna, because you're bringing out something that I think is important for our listeners to know. Um, in 1997, there was a the revitalization act that yes, passed, sir. and that, pat, that act put DC corrections under federal supervision mm-hmm. for certain for certain crimes. Um, no, all crimes. All crimes. All crimes. I mean, no, but
0: I mean, any. Anytime, if you're gonna do any felony, like if you're gonna do time, right? Yeah, it, for felonies. Yep. yep. So
1: for many, um, so what that means in real terms for many families um, is that you could be here in DC. But like your father was once in California, yeah. or you could be anywhere in the federal system. That's right. um, and that's only in D.C. I mean, only this is the only place that does that. So how does that law, um, how does that act? How did it impact you personally? And how does it impact the people that you engage with in your work?
0: Yeah, man. It, 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 uh, it, well, it didn't impact, well, in terms of my father's situation, my father was a federal prisoner
1: in, in the first way. place. In the first
0: okay. place. Okay. Okay, but my cousins... My uncles who who broke local laws, obviously, my friends especially, who broke D.C. code violations. And normally you would go, it was a place called Lorton, who's in, it was in Virginia, it served as our state prison. Um, but they closed that under the Revitalization Act. Um, and so... For those people, they went into the federal system as well, and for many people, man, whether it's the return of the citizen or the children I mentor, their parents are hundreds to thousands of miles away from mm. and it really is financially they can't go to see him mm. you know what i'm saying so it really really incarceration is tough anyway but when people got to be hundreds and thousands of miles away from their family it also impacts reentry because you so far away right. it's almost like you're you're non-existent and then you drop back into washington mm. you know what i'm saying mm. and told to just get it together um, when you start talking about family reunification and things like that it makes it more difficult because visits help you know what I mean? Visits help. So, and and it's such a unique thing um, that DC inmates go through. I really would look to. And and the other irony of that, though, it created the agency that I work for. <laughs> right. Actually, yeah. you know what I'm saying? The revitalization act created um, CISO. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it had to become federal and over to in order to supervise federal inmates. Um, one of the things I would like to see, especially with technology, is that we use video conferencing or some similar technology to keep D.C. inmates connected with their families. Right. Say like somebody like my dad wouldn't be eligible for that because he's a federal, uh, a, a, a federal inmate. Um, but I think D.C. code offenders should be allowed. To communicate with their families, man, using technology because it, you know, you you can't. I mean, like I got homies in in uh, Atwater, California, mm-hmm. Pollock, Louisiana, mm-hmm. Beckley, West Virginia. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Lee County, which is in Jonesville, Virginia. These places far. Yeah. My uncle's, you know, Button in North Carolina. Island, USP Allenwood and White Deer, Pennsylvania. Right. School Schoolkill, Pennsylvania. All these places you never heard of right. ever. Small town. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So so so. Think about a kid around my way or a kid in Southeast, a kid in Northeast growing up in Trinidad or whatever. His parent, his family can't go to no Atwater, California. Mm-hmm. No visit. That's an, that's an impossibility. Right. You know, and that's happening for every DC family. I mean, they try to keep you in a 500 mile radius, but if I'm poor, no car, no, you know, it's difficult regardless. They need to look at that. There has to be something and done there, about
1: that. And there are opportunities, you know, with CTF coming back under the, cold, yeah. the under the control of the district mm-hmm. and being under capacity, mm-hmm. um, there's opportunities to bring back more federal prisoners, bring them back here to D.C. if yep. they're from D.C. So for anyone listening out there, if you're living in D.C., please... Let your council member know that sure we want to see the CTF repurposed to bring back federal prisoners, prisoners yep. who have been convicted here in D.C. Absolutely,
0: or if they, or or if you have, say, if you got like a 24 month to 48 month sentence, maybe you never go to the feds, period. Right, maybe you just stay at C T F mm. Now if you got twenty years what okay. But if you got anything from a year to four years, maybe you just stay at C T F mm. You gotta we have to do something, you know what I mean? See, I fishing, think efficient
2: even point. in terms of operations like the how the how it's run currently, you know. So even if you take the humanity out of it, the way that some of these systems are operating is just totally against how things should flow in terms of supply chain. So I just think the whole industry is wrong on
0: a multitude of fronts. Oh, it is, man. And they overcharge for everything. It's a lot, bro. It's a lot. I, I think D.C. is in a very, very unique situation. Um, I'm going to tell you what I foresee, though, as it relates to the whole that whole jail CTF piece. I foresee them just probably building a new jail somewhere, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. probably gonna close DC General, and that's gonna be just like prime land right on the mm-hmm. water. Like, I can foresee that. I I don't know if all this rhetoric around the j- jail been in despair,
1: right?
0: <laughs> but it's cool. I mean, I I do think the the but anyway, the CTF idea I think is is amazing. I think they should definitely look into that. They should look into bringing people home. Maybe a year before release, have them do a lot of programming at CTF Mm -hmm. to help them get reacclimated. I think we got to look at potentially doing work release again. You know, all Mm -hmm. these things, they used to exist. There's some houses across the street from me. Um, It used to be an empty lot. They built them in like 96, 97. Lorton Prisoners built those homes. Mm I mean, my man, Uncle, used to be on the load. He helped build those houses and work release, but they were acquiring a skill set that when they came, yes, and yeah. when they came home, they could say that I literally know how to do this work. Work
2: experience. Yeah. Dudes
0: coming home from prison, trust me, they come home from prison, don't not do nothing. Right. They in prison doing nothing, Not bro. even
2: like barber or anything. Yeah, they not, yeah. they're
0: acquiring no skills. They yeah. not, like dudes, I'm like, how you come home and you ain't got no GD. Right. I mean, it certain stuff that I feel like if, 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 if these things were important, that they would be, you know, they could be mandated or, mm-hmm. co- or given incentives like, yo, you get your g d get some mm-hmm. time off. Right. That'll give inmates more incentive. Like, right, and right. It, an inmate would have something coming out right. more than what he had when he went in. You know what I mean? But, you
1: know. Well, t- Tony, thank you so much. Um, we're going to wrap up this conversation. And um, I'm just going to close it out with just a little bit of sort of some evolution that has happened in my mind around this talk about mass incarceration, um, especially from that systemic perspective. Mm -hmm. And I'm sort of, I've come to a point where I realize this is really a conversation about space and place, right? We have created spaces and places on the outside in many of our communities that breeds violence, you know, breeds uh, despair in so many levels. And then we've created spaces, Uh, Walled spaces, we call prisons, that breed the same thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think if we're ever really going to truly tackle this issue of mass incarceration, we have to think of how to reuse these spaces, how to create opportunities in these spaces, even in a jail space. You know, I think um, even though, you know, even if you have to incarcerate someone, why not incarcerate them in a humane space? Why not incarcerate them in a space that doesn't breed violence? You know, and I know this is um, pretty lofty thinking, but I think there needs some lofty thinking. Um, if we're really going to solve this problem, because if you create spaces that breathe violence and despair, it's just going to perpetuate itself. Uh, so, Tony, thank you so much for you, being God. a leader in the community, for sharing your story. Um, I want to let Mac in, uh, Matt interject here. But right before I do, I want to give a shout out to Impact Hub DC. Uh, where we're recording from. Uh, Thank you so much for letting us use this space. And for all of you who don't know about Impact Hub DC, we're right in the center of the city, and we're truly a hub for social change makers. And we're located at 419 7th Street, Northwest.
2: Right. Yeah, I just wanted to wrap up by asking Tony to uh, pub his book and also your social media platform so anybody who listens to us can follow you.
0: No doubt. Um, first of all, too, thank you guys for having me again. Um, I'm Mr. Tony Lewis on Instagram and Twitter. That's M-R-Tony Lewis, Jr. Um, sluglife.com is where you can find the book online Uh, for ebook you can go to iBooks or Amazon or Nook or Kobo Um, if you're in the DC area Politics and Prose, Busboys and Poets Maketo, Potter's House um, and also Upset Street Books and um, yeah man check me out any of my community initiatives feel free to join and the push and uh, I'll see you guys around
1: Yes, sir. Thank you. You have been listening to the Capital Innovation Podcast, a podcast about mass incarceration in Washington, D.C. We thank you so much, Tony. Thank you, Matt. And let's just continue to push these issues and push for change. Peace.